And let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, where we'll read in just a moment, beginning in verse 35. It's found on page 998 of your Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. That's page 998, and it's Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Recently, if you've been with us, um, I had the opportunity to preach to you from Psalm 29. Uh, You might remember that that sermon was titled, The Storm Doxology. We heard a little bit of it this morning in our call to worship. It's a wonderful psalm where David reflects on a storm. He sees it coming over the Mediterranean. He sees it crashing down and, and kind of hitting landfall in Lebanon above Israel and then sweeping down over Israel, and he uses this storm as a metaphor, really, to talk about the presence of God, the voice of God in the storm. And if you were there a couple weeks ago, you know that that way of seeing things that David had in that psalm is not unique to him. He got that, as he got most of the things in his psalms, from his Bible. He had read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's what David had. And in the Torah, he heard of the storm that took place at the beginning of creation as the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep and brought out of that darkness our world. He knew probably more poignantly of the storm that took place on the top of Mount Sinai, thunderings and lightnings that occurred there. And he knew that somehow storms are connected to the presence of God. And so it wasn't surprising that he would... He would write Psalm 29 or other psalms like Psalm 107 that we just read this morning. That same theme of God in the storm continues through your Bible. Isaiah sees it. Uh, John in the book of Revelation goes to heaven and sees it. At Jesus' transfiguration, there is a cloud and thunder and lightning. So this is a theophany, a way of saying God being real, showing himself Uh, Theo meaning God, Ophany meaning a revelation, a revelation of God, of his power and his glory. That's what all of these texts are about. They're all linked by that. Now, if if you understand that, if you have some sense of that, hopefully you'll understand this morning why Jesus's disciples were terrified. They had seen Jesus heal people. They had seen Jesus make people walk, cure leprosy. And when Jesus did that, they said, look, Elijah is among us again. A great prophet has arisen, and they were right to think that. You might remember from the Gospels, many people thought Jesus initially, they thought Jesus was a great prophet. The prophet Elijah is usually the connection that they would make. And if you go back and you read Elijah's life, it makes sense. Elijah was a a, a prophet of great miracles, especially healing miracles. And so they made that connection. But two of Jesus' miracles were told in Scripture did not just impress them, they actually terrified them. And if you understand this backstory, you can understand why this was. We're looking at one of them this morning. When Jesus, in the midst of a raging storm, simply stood up and said, stop, no prayer, no petition, no incantation, just stop, and it stopped. And then a second time, when they saw him walking on the water, they were absolutely terrified. Miracles of healing, prophets had done that before, prophets have done that since, and occasionally healings of miracles happen today even in some rare occasions. That was not unknown. But for a man, for a human being to command nature 
in that godlike fashion was unprecedented, not only in the entire of the Old Testament, but also even up until today. There's no one else, no apostle, no prophet, nobody who exercised that kind of dominion, direct dominion over nature. And so we'll see in our text here, the disciples were truly and really terrified. This was unprecedented territory. This is how Thousands of Jewish people who had been raised all their life to believe that there was God, one God, one God only in heaven who could never come and be in our presence. How did they come very suddenly in the first century, thousands of them, to believe that Jesus was God and to offer up their lives knowing they would lose their lives for believing that? They saw things and witnessed things they could not explain in any other way. They were blown away, pun intended by the revelation of Christ in these passages. And so I want to move from Psalm 29 that we looked at uh, last time into Mark. And with that background of Psalm 29, I hope you'll appreciate in a new way, in a deeper way, what's happening here in Mark 4. Also this morning, just a side note for all my apologetics students, some of here, whom are here uh, this morning, this is also a great example, young people, of what we saw this week of the reliability of the New Testament. So keep your ears open for that. There will be a test on Wednesday. So you really got to pay attention to this sermon. With that introduction, let me invite you to stand. Let's read God's word. Again, we're in Mark chapter 4, and I'll begin in verse 35. On that day when evening had come... He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we too come as the disciples with wonder as we consider the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Who is he? None of us can fully take him in. His glory, his beauty fills heaven and earth, fills our hearts, and yet is never exhausted. So unveil him to us in this text. Help us to see the glory and the beauty of our Savior. And in seeing him, Turn us from our fears. Turn our eyes from the stormy waters of this life and renew our faith, our hope, and our trust in him. This we pray you would do because your son deserves to be glorified in all the earth. And so we pray it for his sake and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage this morning is a short one, and rather than going verse by verse, I want to take this one small scene and look at it from sort of three different angles and just point out to you, I think, three different dimensions 
of this wonderful and memorable text. First of all, I want you to see that it is a reliable account, a reliable account. Second, that it is a relatable account. And third, that it is a revealing account. I don't always get to use the same letter, but it worked this time. So reliable, relatable, and revealing. So first of all, the first thing that commands our attention is the story's reliability. It may be hard for us to believe that this really happens. Some of us maybe find it easier to believe than others. Uh, We are modern people, and so when we hear that someone stopped a storm, we naturally want to look for a scientific explanation for what happened. Or maybe we doubt that this even happened at all. If you're struggling with that, you're not alone. Here are some of the modern ways people have tried to explain this story away. And let me share with you, with each one, why they don't ultimately work. So the first one we might call the evolutionary explanation. Some scholars in the past, especially in the 20th century, have tried to say that this little story evolved over time. In other words, these modern critical scholars say, uh, yes, something happened that day on the, on the lake. There was a storm. Maybe it ended abruptly. The apostles wrote about it, and over time, the church embellished those stories until you have what you have today, this overwhelming miracle account. This is their version of the telephone game, where, you know, one person starts a whispered story, and then you pass it down and you laugh when about 10 people later it doesn't even sound anything like the original story. Well, that was the theory, the dominant theory in the 20th century. Well, it brings me great joy to tell you that theory is now dead and utterly useless. Why? Because copies of Mark we now have have been found that date to just 50 years or less after Christ's death. Scholars used to say, and Dan Brown made it famous in his book, his novels, that the divinity of Jesus, Jesus as God, passages like this that show Jesus as God, were created over a long period of time. This theory, though it sounds sophisticated and occasionally you'll still hear it on PBS, it was destroyed uh, long ago when scientists demonstrated and agreed that Philippians was probably the earliest book of the New Testament, And just also happens to have, if not the strongest statement of Jesus' divinity, uh, certainly one of the top two or three. Now, as a Christian, I and I hope you, we never believed any of these theories anyway, but it's nice to just now have proof. So the evolutionary approach has completely failed, completely been destroyed, completely been refuted. Well, there's also the naturalist approach. So people always, whenever Jesus shows himself, the natural man always looks for some excuse not to believe. So when the evolutionary approach failed and was proven to be untrue, people did not repent in the Western world and say, hey, we were so wrong. We taught this for 100 years in all our major seminaries. We shouldn't have taught it. Please forgive us. No, they just went to a new theory. So the second theory was naturalism. Uh, Second way around the story is to say the disciples just overreacted. There was a storm. It did end suddenly, and the disciples were not modern scientific people like us. This was 2,000 years ago. They didn't understand what happened, and like so many ancient people, they simply attributed it to their gods. In fact, some say there was totally natural explanations for all this. But this theory doesn't work at all. Here's why. The disciples were fishermen, professionally, 
They were trained seamen. They sailed on this same sea all the time, usually at night when the fishing was done. They may not have had iPhone weather, but they knew the difference between a storm that quickly died down and a storm that went suddenly silent instantaneously. Verse 41 says that they were incredibly scared at the end of this, not by the storm, but by what they saw Jesus do. And these were, again, trained seamen. In addition, as you all know, even when a storm stops, the water does not go calm instantaneously. We've all been to the beach in the morning after a storm and watched the waves pound for hours. The text says, though, in verse 39, there was a great calm and, or literally, a perfect calm. This can't be explained away. Yes, they were not scientists, but this was their expertise. No one was better prepared to record this miracle and know whether it was real or just a coincidence. One last theory. You can see how people flounder around trying to find explanations. So one last theory. Some just skip those two ideas altogether and they say, look, it's just simple. The disciples made it up. The whole story's made up. It's a legend. It's a myth. It's not a historical account. Now, ancient people did, people at this time did write legends. They wrote fanciful stories about great heroes. And a lot of people, when they read this story, go that route. It's just a legend. It's just a myth. But the genre of the Bible does not conform in any way to legend literature. We have lots of legends from the ancient world, and they don't work this way. They don't sound anything like this. Instead, our passage gives a clear time, place, and even little details. It looks like a real memory. And notice, for example, that you tend to remember little things, little details. Maybe you were in a car accident, and you can close your mind and still see the accident happening, and for whatever reason, you don't remember which side you were hit on, but you remember the shirt you were wearing or something that was on your dashboard at the time or the music that was playing. That's the way real memory works. And so notice that Mark tells us little details, historical details. He says in verse 36 that other ships, little ships, went with them. And in verse 38, he says that Jesus rested his head on a little pillow that was in the stern. If this is a legend, why does it make the disciples also look so bad? In other words, if the disciples made up this story to start a new religion, why did they portray themselves as faithless, scared, and confused? If it were a legend, if they made it up to start a religion, they would want to look good so that people would follow them. Instead of looking good, though they hear, as always in the New Testament, they look realistic. They react how we would react. They can't believe what they're seeing, and they're scared, and they're confused, and they're not shy about saying it. C.S. Lewis, uh, before he ever wrote Narnia or any of the books we know him for, was a brilliant student and professor of literature, and really studied literature from around the world. He says this, he says, I've been reading poems romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. That was his profession. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. 
Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is history or else some unknown writer without known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who does not see this has simply not learned to read. Now, I usually don't begin sermons with all this background information. I'm doing so today because I believe that passages with miracles of this magnitude are very difficult to believe, and because so long as you do not trust the Bible, you cannot have a real relationship with Christ, the Christ of the Bible. If the Bible is true, or isn't true, rather, then you really don't even know who Jesus is. There's no point to Christianity at all. I hope you can see that there's nothing unreliable about this. You can't take a shortcut and just say this is a fairy tale, this is a legend, or that some sinister conspiracy hundreds of years later made this up. All that makes for really fun novels and movies, but it just isn't true. We just can't dismiss the story on the surface. No, you have to deal with what is in front of us. Thousands of Jews, tens of thousands of Jews and Gentiles almost instantaneously believed in Jesus as God. They did this because they said they witnessed unexplainable things. They lost everything to make this claim. And according to their own words, they did not want to even come to this conclusion. They were forced to it because of what they witnessed. It is a compelling and reliable witness. The second thing I want you to see in our story is that as it is reliable, so it is wonderfully relatable. Wonderfully relatable. And here's what I mean. Right from the early years of the church, Christians have found in this story, I'm sure you have as well, I know I have, a compelling picture of what it means to follow Christ. People can relate to it. We can relate to it. Whether it's the church fathers, men like Augustine, Tertullian, Chrysostom, or Reformed theologians like Calvin or modern preachers, we all relate to it. Why? Because the Christian life looks and feels a lot like being in a boat with Christ on a turbulent and unpredictable sea. God is constantly sending his people into storms, and yet he's always in the boat with us. And we have a saying in our culture, don't we? When someone understands our situation, we may comfort them by saying, hey, hey, I understand your struggle. We're in the same boat. As we watch the disciples here today, I feel that we are in the same boat. Here then are some things we can relate to, some aspects of their experience that fits our own. First of all, like the disciples, Jesus often leads us into storms. Jesus often leads us into storms. Verse 35 tells us that it was Jesus' idea to cross the sea at that particular time. The text says, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. John Calvin helpfully notes, the storm was no accident. Jesus intended to make known to the apostles how weak their faith was. He put them in the storm. 
Now, some of the storms in our lives are due to our sinfulness. But sometimes the Lord sends us into a storm to teach us. The storm is our classroom. Peter teaches us that God does not do this to hurt us, though it feels like that. But he says this, the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of you are familiar with the book of poems entitled The Valley of Vision. Or maybe you've heard the contemporary album based on those poems. What is the valley of vision? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that when you're picking it up. And here's, here's what it says. That particular poem, the book is named after that poem called The Valley of Vision. Here's some of what it says. Thou, God, has brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. The author then goes on to say, there are stars that can only be seen in the dark. In other words, the valley of vision is the storm. It's the lowest point in your life. It's the hardest thing about your life. The valley of the shadow of death which can become the place, can become the place where Christ meets you and shows himself in new ways. The words of Samuel Rutherford, my spiritual mentor, always uh, are in my mind in such situations. Rutherford wrote, Oh, what I owe, oh, what I owe to the file and the hammer and the furnace of my Lord Jesus. The trials. This is a man imprisoned for his faith repeatedly. He says this, grace, grace tried, grace tried under temptation and struggle is better than grace and it's more than grace. It is glory in its infancy. Not only can we relate to their experience, I think we can also relate to their reaction. Like us, the disciples did not say, thank you, Jesus, for this suffering and terror. No, like us, their blood pressure spiked and they were terrified of the storm. And like us at times, they began to ask God, why don't you even care about us? Look, and if you can, relate with verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The storm was meant to test their faith. It was not an accident. As we saw, it was Jesus' idea. It was meant to show them how weak their faith really was. Maybe they thought of themselves as Jesus' inner circle, receiving special teaching, special access to Christ. The storm was an incredible gut check for these men. And we see in it that their faith was weak. And Jesus rebukes them in verse 40. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now, it's so important, I think, very important this morning for you to understand why Jesus is rebuking them. There's a lot of lazy, bad preaching that happens on this verse. So hopefully I'll get it right for you. He's not rebuking them. This is so important. He's not rebuking them 
for normal human fear in the face of a storm. A portion of their fear was perfectly natural and understandable. Some fear is simply a human biological reaction to danger. Many characters in the Bible struggle with fear. Even Jesus, remember, is awed, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a certain fear, a certain awe that he has as he weeps in dark Gethsemane as he looks to the cross. But verse 38 tells us that their fear had moved beyond that point of a normal human reaction and had overcome their faith. There's a fear that becomes a kind of sin, a lack of faith. But when does that happen? I don't know if you've struggled with this. I know I have. When does fear, normal human reaction, actually become sin? I found uh, John Calvin really helpful here. He says that fear becomes sinful when it eclipses, when it eclipses the promises of God. When you are no longer trusting in God's promises The disciples had to know. They had to know if they had thought for a moment clearly. They had to know that they were not going to drown that day. Why? Because Jesus had already told them, I'm going to build my church through you. Their fear had run away with them until it had eclipsed the promises of God. Jesus wasn't rebuking them. He was not rebuking them or us for our natural fear. If the engine of your plane, you're flying a plane, God forbid, and, you're in, and the engine blows up, you are going to be afraid. That's understandable. That's not what he's rebuking. Rather, he's rebuking us and them for that deeper fear in us, that fear in each one of us that says, God is not really there. God is asleep. God does not care. God cannot be trusted. God's promises will not come true. Sinclair Ferguson says, they allowed the storm, this was their sin, they allowed the storm to come between them and their assurance of their master's devotion to them. When storms arise, we doubt his love. We allow our faith to be diverted from its anchor in the cross, and therefore we lose our moorings in the storms of life. That sinful fear led them, and at times us, to say those terrible words in verse 38. And they really are terrible words. And we've all said them at one time or another. Do you not care? Do you not care? How can we say that to the one who left heaven's glory for us? To the one who is going even now in this story to the cross for them? To the one who is sleeping during the storm. He's sleeping during the storm because he's so completely exhausted from healing and teaching them. This is your anchor in every storm. Jesus may seem asleep. God may seem absent from my problems. But he who died for me will never falter in his love. It is a reliable Verse set of verses. It's a reliable scene. It is a relatable one. Now, thirdly, lastly, it's revealing, isn't it? Above all, this is not just a miracle, but an epiphany of sorts, a revelation. It really is the valley of vision. 
In the darkness of the moment, you see, the curtain was pulled back, the curtain that separates our world from the world to come, and the disciples saw a little bit of who Jesus really is. Verse 41 tips you off because this is the reaction of John when he goes to heaven in Revelation. It's the reaction of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he goes into heaven. Hear those same words here in verse 41. They feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? The storm scared them. But Mark says that Jesus's power display terrified them. The healings were impressive, really impressive. But this, this kind of command over the most powerful and uncontrollable part of our world, it was unthinkable. Jesus is clearly a man. One minute ago, he was sleeping on a cushion. But he also must be something else. Chrysostom, the ancient church father, commenting on this moment in the Gospels, says this, What manner of man is this? Since while the sleep and the outward appearance showed man, the sea and the calm declared God. He put forth no rod as Moses did, Neither did he stretch forth his hands to heaven, nor did he need any prayer, but as was fitting for a master commanding his servant or a creator commanding the creation, so did he quiet and curb it by a word and command only, and not one trace of the disturbance remained. Jews and Gentiles of this era, this period of history, strongly believed, and it's true even today, that no one but God could control the sea. And if you've been on the ocean, you know that that's true. Think of the killer tsunamis that strike our world. Who can control something like that? Who can move it by a simple command from storm to total calm and in a moment? The only voice strong enough to still the waves would be the voice who made the waves. The implications are astounding. And the disciples, though they lived in a very different time for us, from us, they actually did exactly what I would have done and what you would have done if Jesus came along among us today. They simply could not deal with the display of his glory. They had no category for something like this. Right from the very first verse, Mark has been telling us in his gospel that this is the issue. Who is Jesus? And here, once again, Jesus shows us that he's not just another religious teacher or a prophet even. He is God himself come down for us. Mark will end this gospel by saying these things, quote, This is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, that is, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, and the Son of God, a divine person. And this text once again brings us to Mark's trilemma, a thing you see all through all four Gospels. It's really the trilemma of the New Testament. Is Jesus one of these things you must choose? As Lewis once put it, he is either lunatic, like someone who believes they're Napoleon, 
or he is liar, he has made all this up, or he is Lord. The one choice you cannot make is to treat him as just one more moral teacher, to put him on the shelf, as it were, with Buddha or Muhammad. Jesus did not say, I'm a prophet. Let me show you a new path to God as those men did. Rather, he said, I am myself the way, the truth, and the life. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I and the Father are one. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, uh, there are many applications to this wonderful scene. It lifts up our minds and hearts to see the glory of Christ, and it calms us in difficult times. Some months after this happened, some months later, there was another storm. You might know this. It's not as bad, but the sea was rocking and rolling. The wind was blowing. And Jesus, this time, did not stop the storm immediately. He changed it up a little bit. He could have done that. But again, he wanted to teach his disciples. And so this time, he walked upon the water to them. He came to them over the psalm. He knew, of course, that the psalms described God and God alone as the one who could walk on water. So he knew what he was showing them when he did that. Maybe you remember what happened next, though. Peter attempted to do the same. And with Jesus' permission, he began. He stepped out of the boat, began to walk across the sea to Jesus. But the Bible says that Peter took his eyes off Jesus and started looking at the water, the waves, the wind, and he began to sink. Again, that's relatable, isn't it? And then what did Jesus do, though? Did he leave Peter or leave us in our trials, our struggles, our discouragements to drown because our faith is weak? No, Jesus came to him as he comes to us and takes us by the hand and gently guides us along. You see, in the words of Thomas Watson, even a weak faith, a very small faith, can receive a strong Christ. Or the words of the Puritan Richard Sibbs, a weak hand, just a weak hand, may receive a rich jewel. So the message today for believers is don't go out in your own faith and be strong in your own power. Rather, the message today is to look to Jesus, the great Lord of the storm. He puts you in it. He's working through it. And when you begin to sink, then you will know that he will bear you through it. He is the master of the storm. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. The cross must be your anchor in all of this. You must return again and again to that simple logic, that unbeatable logic of Romans 8. If Jesus did this for me, if Jesus went to the cross for me, how can I ever again doubt his love? Therefore, he must be Lord of the storm. And then and only then can you open yourself up to the question, what loving purpose, what loving purpose is God about in this storm in my life right now? If you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus, uh, this is also a call to trust the master. Let me tell you about another storm 
It's a storm in the life of Jonah. You know, know that story. Jonah's a prophet and he's on the run from God. God has told him to go to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go. And he's on a ship and the ship is being torn apart. And Jonah's caught in the storm. The language actually in the Greek is almost identical between Jonah's storm and the words used here. And the sailors that are with Jonah, they all expect to die. But Jonah tells them, if you throw me in, you'll survive. The storm will stop dead and you'll be fine. Now, at first, to the credit of those sailors, they refuse to do it. But eventually, in total desperation, they throw Jonah overboard. And what happened? The storm ceased. If you're not a believer this morning, that is a picture. Did you know Jesus connected himself in his own teaching to the story of Jonah? That is a picture of what happens when you come to Christ. The storm of your life is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. That's just part of this. We all know it. We all know where we're headed. And yet there's one who can take your place, who thrown over the side, brings an end to all God's wrath, makes you right with him, and brings perfect calm to the storm. That's why Jesus, right before he's crucified, brings up the story of Jonah. There are so many parallels between that story and what he's about to see. And so for you too, the cross can become an anchor as you trust in him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. He takes that penalty and he calms the storm for you. So if you're a believer in life's trials or an unbeliever facing wrath and discouragement without hope in either case and in every case, Jesus is the Lord of the storm. He quenches the fierce anger of Mount Sinai. He is the voice of the Lord in keeping of Psalm 29, and he is the master over all the storms of this life. Trust in him, rest in him, for he can command all things by his voice. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we join with your disciples this morning in wondering at your glory and power your ability to command all things in our lives and in our world for our good and your glory. Help us, like your disciples, to see your glory and to rejoice and to believe, even though it is a fearful and wonderful thing. Grant grace to those who are here this morning, Father, for believers who are in the storm. May they know that Christ is always present with his people in their furnaces. He is always the one walking about who has the appearance of the Son of Man. For those who do not know you, Father, who have not come to your Son for salvation, may they find in Christ that sacrifice that will calm all storms and will change their life forever. Work in those hearts as well, we pray. And do all this so that Christ, the Lord of the storm, may be glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen.